Blackwater, the Wagner Group, Executive Outcomes, the Flying Tigers, the Swiss Guard, the White Company, the Knights Templar, the Varangian Guard, Clerkus of Sparta, Pythagoras the Spartan, Mentor of Rhodes, Socrates of Achaea. The list is endless. Mercenaries, guns for hire, soldiers of fortune, private military companies, private security contractors, dirty deeds, done not so dirt cheap. History is replete with privatized militaries. Call them what you want. They have been around for a very long time, and they are very likely not going away anytime soon. So you better get used to it, grow up, and accept it, or move to another planet. Because these days, in this world, folks, money trumps everything. And like it or not, wars are good, very good, for business. And pandemics, as if the only pandemic being hyped is an actual thing. Folks, epidemics, and pandemics have been around for as long as mankind. The only thing hurting anyone is the pandemic of the ignorant, the gullible, and the blindly obedient. Furthermore, history tells us that more people are enslaved and killed by such means as greed, corruption, oppression, and tyranny than by any other means. Money, profits, and propaganda. Call it psychological operations or call it psychological conditioning. You are being gaslit. So choose the red pill. Remove your blinders, all of them, and take a good sensory inventory of what you're being told and shown to believe. Because here we go. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Oconus, The Contractor's Life. Talking from the relatively insulated and bucolic rural foothills in northwestern Washington State, I'm your host, Scott Dresser. So life as a private security contractor in a hostile or a war-torn zone or a non-permissive environment. I love that phrase. It is a mixed bag of blessings. Some good, some not so good. All in all though, private security contracting is much the same as life. It is what you make it. The MENA region, or the Middle East, North Africa region. Lands of enchantment, lands of mystery, lands of the old ones and the ancient ones, myths, legends, folklore, maybe. If you believe what you read in the ancient and the holy texts, then you know that it all centers around what we refer to as the MENA region, primarily the Mediterranean. And you probably also know that to every legend or myth, there is a base of at least some truth. Now, that said, following on with the previous episode, I promised to move on to Iraq. So we are. Doesn't mean that I won't occasionally, sporadically, circle back to Kuwait or jump forward into Afghanistan and go back and forth and round and around and around she goes. Uh, it's just the way it goes, you know. Memory's a funny thing. Um, 
And I'm not going to try and I'm not going to jump to the psychological pool on this one, but I'm just saying. So briefly, uh, the reasons for going to Iraq. I mean, I think I explained it before. Was uh, aside from just that traveling wanderlust that I've seemed to have always had, but never really quite understood why. Uh, wanderlust and. Uh, you know, like I said, Kuwait, it was, like I told that guy during the exit interview, it was just, man, I was bored. I mean, there were some exciting moments. There were some tense moments. Uh, but for the most part, it was just wash, rinse, repeat every day. Had to deal with the same old twits and, uh, you know, just the same old grudgery. You know, I just, I, I was just sick and tired of it. Uh, it was time to move on. And I had been there for a year. So go home. And originally, I only intended to be home for a little bit, take some time off and go back. Um, one thing led to another. I really thought, for whatever reasons, <laughs> I mean, whoa, was I wrong. But I really thought that having been in the military in a, in a previous life, <laughs> okay, no, I wasn't reborn, at, uh, you know, vis-a-vis vis the, the, uh, the Indian, uh, you know, the Indian thing from the country India. No, I was not reincarnated. That's not where I'm going with it. In a quote unquote, in a previous life, I was in the military. Okay. And I had a combat arms MOS and I had spent a year overseas. I really thought based on my previous encounters with private standard private security model, that I would more than fit in and that I would do just fine. I could come home and get a job um, if not as a supervisor, at least at the top of the of the working totem pole down there and, and work up fairly quickly. Well, uh, long story short, it didn't take me very long to find out that that wasn't the case. Also came to find out that a lot of companies didn't want to hire guys like me be for a lot of reasons. One, and it was told to me a great number of times over the years. We intimidated them. They were afraid they were going to lose their jobs to us because we would show them up, yada, yada, yada. Just went on and on and on. So long story short, after uh, floundering and working a variety of jobs, two and three jobs at a time, uh, some of you might remember uh, the country was going through, uh, I don't think it was a recessionary period, but certainly an inflationary period. Uh, and anyway, so, you know, I didn't want to move to another state. I didn't want to do the, the I just, I wanted to stay home. I ripped man, just seeing the green grass of home after seeing the, the brown desert for a year, seeing the green grass of home, the green trees, being home with the family. I really wanted to stay home. So private security wasn't going to work at that point. So I worked plenty of other jobs, uh, just, you know, to pay the bills and get along. Uh, then, uh, got on with a security company, I think it was the same security company that I got on with previously. Uh, and things started to work out. It looked like it was going to work. I was a supervisor um, at a static post for a, uh, a health facility, a large hospital in a rural city, rural town. And things were going along fine, but I quickly discovered that, uh, yeah, you know, the precepts and the perceptions of the people on the ground for the client were not quite 
what I thought they should be. And we had a lot of problems. They they wanted this, they wanted that, and it's like, you know, so we would butt heads one thing or another. Long story short, I said, that's it, man. I'm going back overseas. I've had enough. Um, I built my network. I talked to people, um, signed on with another company. But before doing that, uh, it was brought to my attention, the company I was working for at the time when I came home, that they were working on some EP gigs that they were get, that they were going to get some contracts for. And I thought, oh, okay. So long story short, between that and what I was ultimately eyeing downrange, I went and signed up for a private uh, EP course. And it was in uh, South Carolina, I believe it was, Moyoc. Okay? And so I went through there on my own dime, paid for that. Great course, uh, really long hours, uh, really long hours. But uh, it was a great course, came back, uh, and that, what I thought was going to work, didn't. Um, probably because... At that time, at that point in time, guys were starting to come back from the war. And real people that really knew what they were doing were getting the real jobs, the real contracts. And so companies like the one that I was working for were being displaced or disqualified because they didn't have it. Um, so I had this conversation, said, hey, what happened? I thought you guys were going to do this EP thing, yada, yada, yada. And... Um, Supervisor says, yeah, well, how difficult can it be? I mean, you know, you, you jump in a car, you drive the person, you get out, you escort him. He says, I'm going to do it. <laughs> oh, Lordy. Okay, anyway, so long story short, I had had enough. Um, I decided to jump back in. I went back overseas. Uh, this time I signed on with a different company, and uh, it was Sock at that time. And... Part of going over there was that we had to go through the um, a training course in Nevada, instructional training course. It wasn't all. It wasn't particularly difficult, um, as I recollect, and it didn't last that long. I think our total time on the ground was roughly a week. Um, but there was a fellow that was part of the class, um, and he probably wasn't the only one. But I knew for sure he didn't cut the muster. Because he was one of my roomies. There, uh, there were two or three of us in the room, uh, in the hotel room. But it came out that he didn't cut the muster. He wasn't going over, and he was he was distraught, dejected, and one thing or another. And we talked for a while, and I made him feel better. And I think at some point he did finally figure it out, and he did finally make it overseas. Um, so anyway, so we went through this course. Uh, we get our orders. Uh, going to move. We fly over there, and I want to say the very next day after arriving, and it was at that time, it was a locale on VBC, which some of you probably know as Victory Base Complex. Okay, so Victory Base, along with a few other bases, were some of the original bases established over there in what later became VBC or the Victory Base Complex, a, a complex of of um, you know, bases and fobs and, and other things that, that grew into this monstrosity of a place that, that, that was center stage for pretty much everyone and everything. And it was, it's, it was, it became part of the green zone, which later became the IZ or the international zone. Um, 
So flew in there. We we did our, our brief check-in, one thing or another. That, I believe it was the next day, certainly the next night, um, trying to go to sleep. Maybe it was that night, actually. Uh, laying down after we've gone through everything and, and, uh, we're not quite situated. We're not, you know, we haven't even made it to the first day on the job. Laying down in the room, a small room, chew, as we called them, uh, our civilian housing units. Uh, they come in various sizes and, and they, they're composed of various materials. They don't all look the same. Sometimes they use connexes. <laughs> okay. Some of them, you might be familiar with the connex. But so we're in a small chew. It's an open room. It's divided by um, a, a couple sets of uh, wall lockers that mean that, that that separates my bed from my roommate's bed. And we're talking on either side of between the wall and the foot lockers. These wall lockers. We're talking maybe five or six feet width. So it's pretty cramped. Anyway, so we're in there. I'm laying down, trying to go to sleep, and. It's welcome to Baghdad time, folks. Yes, <laughs> incoming. Fair amount of it. For the first time, I heard the sea whiz and going off and the mortars and everything else popping off and shooting. And I'm like, oh, man. You know, and of course, um, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do because we never really went through what we're supposed to do, uh, where we're supposed to go, rally points, this, that, one thing, another, muster. Uh, and something like this happens. Uh, turns out that, in hindsight, the the reason there really wasn't a plan for that is that there's really there's nothing you can do, and we weren't part of the force protection unit for that base, for that complex. We were a different project, um, specifically at one location on the periphery of vbc and so but anyway so welcome to baghdad my my first or second night there yeah um and it wasn't an uncommon experience it happened uh uh it it didn't happen quite as frequently as, as the weeks rolled on but yeah so there i am i'm working with sock on this project in vbc for a special select group of units that have this section of VBC in one corner. Um, fairly sizable corner for that matter, but that, that was it. So, <laughs> interestingly, a number of things occurred or as a result of that. One, I realized that I was probably not going to be bored so much anymore. <laughs> no, I was not longing to go back to Kuwait. Um, but, uh, it, it was it, it was a it was a mild to moderate eye opener, and uh, the other thing that occurred is I mean I had always been a person of faith because I grew up in a Catholic family, uh, grandmother and mother and one thing or another they they're all you know so we went to church we did the Sunday school thing, but I quickly found God and became a man of God as a result of that because I for the most part distinctly recall thinking. Wow, <laughs> I could quite literally die in my sleep. Uh, I mean, that's how close this stuff was coming in. And it was overhead, it was here, there, it was everywhere. Um, so, that was, <laughs> yeah, so welcome to Baghdad. That was my thing with socks. So, we were, we were there and can I, I mean, 
I could talk about the project, but not in great detail. Um, other than to say, I think I've kind of obliquely referenced it in previous episodes and that there were people that were detained on this particular location, this facility there, that we were a part of. So our duties might be everything from uh, manning uh, the few towers that were within the confines of this facility that we were assigned to. Uh, it might be, I think the term they used was escorting, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, the Iraqis that would go out to do their thing out there off base. And we were supposed to be in the vehicles with them, um, you know, I don't know, as a, as a supervisory force, uh, an augmenting force, uh, you know, an eyes on the ground so we could, you know, say, you know, this is what they actually did. and Or, yeah, they did it and they did it right. Um, who knows for sure what it really was. It was never really thoroughly <laughs> well explained to me uh, why we were supposed to be there. All the way to um, working for lack of a better term, the clerk, if you will, at uh, the entry and exit point of some of the of this one particular detention facility. Uh, and that was the time and place where I think I've mentioned it before at least once. That fellow who demonstrated quite obviously that he didn't know how to handle even a pistol. Uh, <laughs> I think I've told you that story before. Uh, if not, I'll tell you again briefly. I won't go through all the long draw of it. But it was, for whatever reason, I don't remember why, but on that particular post, we were um, exchanged, I forget the exact term, but we were we were uh, hot exchanging our weapons. So I gave him the pistol. He went to, you know, and I, I gave it to him properly uh, with the slide back. What I should have done in hindsight is pulled out the magazine. <laughs> Didn't. Handed it to him, and and he went through and started racking it, and bullet after bullet after bullet started coming out the, the chamber. I was like, the slide went. It's like, what? And we're looking at each other. What the heck? Anyway, so uh, fast forward through that. Remember, uh, ultimately, it came out that yeah, it wasn't me. The guys came to my rescue and said, yeah, no, it wasn't Russell. It was somebody else. It was this dude. Yeah, this big fat twit that. Uh, doesn't belong here. And he and he wasn't. I don't know if he was reassigned or sent home, uh, but I just know I didn't have to deal with him anymore. That was also the time and place that I, uh, I, I saw the movie, the book of Eli. It was, everybody was talking about it and guys were recommending and saying, Scott, you got to watch it. You got to watch it. You got to watch it, man. And, and I did. Uh, so, you know, a lot of interesting things and times. People might remember that back in, in Iraq, uh, 2008, 2009, Things were changing, but it was still an, in, an interesting place to be. Uh, you know, something that comes to mind that, you know, the little things that you notice, like, for example, uh, the corner towers. There were probably more than just the corner towers, but I noticed in that area where I hung out and uh, would stray occasionally when I wasn't working, but there was a corner tower that had... Guys called it a sniper tower, and it might have been originally, but it was really a, a DM uh, spot, a designated marksman spot, uh, where the person would go up there and they would look for anyone 
because uh, they had a, a, a much better view, a much broader, wider view than anybody else did in any of the other towers because they were in the corners and they were elevated considerably higher than we were when we worked towers there. Uh, but that was basically a designated marksman. It wasn't a sniper. A sniper is a totally, wholly different thing. And, you know, you probably have talked with people like I have that says, yeah, I've been through a sniper course. And it's like, you know, and, and they're usually always civilians or it was always, you know, a few days or a week or whatever. And it's like, well, that's not really a sniper's course because I've been through what you're talking about, which is a, some sort of condensed thing where they're just showing you specific aspects of something that, you know, that they want you to be able to do or be aware of when you're out there. Um, so I, anyway, <laughs> you know, it, just like the story I told you about the guy in, uh, what was that? It was in Afghanistan. It was a Bagram, one of the supervisors that, I'm a combat medic. It's like, no, you're not, dude, because you were never in the military. You were never in the law enforcement, and you're not a medic. You never were a medic. And I said, do you understand what a combat medic is and what it takes to get, become a combat medic? Well, there's my, my med pack right up there, and it was a big-ass pack. I'll give him that. It was a pretty, pretty nice uh, med kit. But it's like, dude, you are not a combat medic you're not even a medic and we got into it over that we got into it all over a lot of other things and, and like i said i'm jumping forward i'll jump back but you know i'm just saying that when people say yeah i'm a sniper because i used to have guys uh this one twit that i worked with again at bagram that was uh a client rep and he was going on a roll about all kinds of things over the months that he was there before he was finally ushered off i think i've kind of obliquely referenced that some good stories there but we'll get to them later <laughs> Back to Baghdad, in Iraq, on VBC, in the quote-unquote green zone. Out there, probably on the bleeding edge of the green zone, because you could see, depending on where you were standing or driving or whatever, you could see BIOP, or Baghdad International Airport. You could see it clearly. I mean, it wasn't like far off in the distance. You could see it. Um, it wasn't exactly a stone's throw either. Probably couldn't even hit with a wrist rocket, but it, was, it wasn't that far away. And the other facility that was out there that guys have mentioned, even if obliquely, that that alphabet soup agency had out there in the field <coughs> uh, that you could see when you're working out there. So, you know, there's all these things. And, of course, the lifestyle and the culture is different, too. At least it was then when you're in Iraq and Afghanistan. Way wholly different than it is in Kuwait. And anybody that's been in the, in the two different environments knows what I'm saying. I mean, is... Can it be tense in Kuwait? There was a time when it could be. Maybe it will be again at some point in the future, but not anymore. Not really. Uh, you're delusional and paranoid if, if you think so. Uh, but in, in Iraq, uh, at least at that time, it, again, it was a different culture, different mindset, different everything there. And it was refreshing. And it was also uh, somebody, I'd heard this before, but it, it really was true because that's where it started where they would say, big boy rules out here, dude. And they briefly explained it to me. And it's like, awesome, man. Cool. I can rock and roll with that. Big boy rules in Iraq. Um, and again, in Afghanistan. Uh, not a, you know, anyway. So if occasionally, you know, the it, it wasn't like some contracts where I was on where everything was pretty much taken care of for you even if you only had to walk maybe 50 feet or 100 feet to get there, like your laundry and one thing or another. This time, laundry was a little bit further. We had to walk or drive a little bit further to get the laundry done, to pick it up. Uh, but on this project, 
um, specifically, we did have laundry facilities at the place that we worked. So we could drop it off when we arrived or after our shift or during our shift, even say like on a lunch break. Because, yeah, we would swap out and, and we would get breaks if we had enough people. If we didn't, you know, we would, you know, two, you know, one up, one down kind of thing. So, you know, we took care of each other. We looked out for each other. We had each other sixes. We, we, we would help each other up, bring each other food, bring each other coffee. If we didn't have time, we would, we would drop off or pick up each other's laundry. I mean, it really started to really come in. And I thought, wow. We're talking brotherhood and sisterhood here. We're talking, you know, true patriotism, the way it should be, the way it used to feel when I was in the military. And it was a great feeling. So breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Well, breakfast and dinner, if you work day shift, at least on that project I was on, breakfast and dinner were on you. Okay, it was up to you to get up in time, go to the DFAC, and get your breakfast. Same thing, you know, if you want dinner, you know, uh, you know what the hours are, so get there. The gym was really, I think it was next door to the DFAC. If not, it was just like a stone's throw away. So pretty nice. Could go in there, work out, you know, uh, clean up, and then go in and get dinner. Lunch uh, was pretty much taken care of like a lot of places I worked, where somebody, usually a supervisor but or other people that were designated, uh, would drive around and bring you lunch um, or bring you coffee if you needed it. So it was really a pretty nice thing. Met a fellow, I don't remember his name, and even if I did, I wouldn't mention it. Um, I don't recall his exact position or title, but he was with the FBI, some intelligence or counterintelligence level. Really cool dude, took a shine to me, um, and one of the working supervisors there said, that's a good thing, Scott, (laughs) because the dude offered me candy. He had a bag of candy, and I forget, it was some sort of hard candy, like Jolly Rancher, whatever it was. And I thought, this was really weird. (laughs) Uh, Kind of creepy, but he goes, no, that's a good thing, Scott. If this dude's offering you candy, that means he likes you. Really? Yes. Okay. (laughs) So we were good to go. Uh, From that moment on, I I was one of the guys, right? Okay. And that was only, uh, man, I don't know, about a week into it. The other thing that was just amazing to me was just the down-to-earth, casual, blue-collar work atmosphere. And what I mean by that, yeah, guys wore whatever footwear they wore. <clears throat> you know, they would wear boots, whether it was military-type boots or work boots or hiking boots or shoes or whatever. I think one or two guys even wore something that was kind of a, a hybrid between tennis shoe and hiking shoe, whatever. They didn't care as long as you showed up on time, at the very least, and stuck around to the end of the shift unless you were properly relieved earlier. But the other thing was, they were not anal about whether we wore sunglasses or didn't, whether we wore a ball cap or didn't, whether we wore a winter cap or didn't. They didn't care, either the guys that I worked with (coughs) or the client, whether we wore a long sleeve shirt, a short sleeve shirt for our outer shirt, our cover shirt, They didn't even care if we didn't even wear a cover shirt if it was hot enough. Because I remember several days, I mean, we were hot. And we went into a kiosk and I was sitting there talking with this dude. I forget his name, but I thought, you know, I think I know this dude. Somehow I knew him at one of the bulletin boards or forums that I used to attend. You know, as we're talking, it's like, I know this dude. Anyway, uh, and and, and he kind of gave it up a little bit. But 
I, and I was complaining, and I took my shirt off. He says, yeah, no problem, man. He goes, they don't care. I said, really? So I'm out there in my Under Armour short sleeve compression shirt working with, of course, I had my 5'11 trousers, and I don't know what footwear I was wearing at that time. I might have had probably the Oakleys, but who knows. But, I mean, just, folks, it was refreshing. Just, I mean, again, big boy rules. We were professionals working with and amongst professionals and as long as you did your job and did it right for the most part they didn't care what else you did okay and that's the mark in my opinion that's at least one of the highlight marks of professionalism and working with a professional group of dudes okay so they don't care if you have facial hair or don't okay can you do the job that they're asking you to do and can you do it every day day in and day out and can you do it properly? If so, who cares about the rest of it? So, okay. So, uh, I've been waxing eloquent about all the stuff that you may be going, all right, so what? So, what else happened there? Well, um, don't have a lot longer in this episode. But one one brief thing that I'll, I won't go, I won't bore you with the entire lengthy details of it. There's several, and, and, I'll, and I'll talk about those later in, in future episodes. But... The one that I think for, to this day still kind of bothers me because neither of us knows how this happened. We're both in the tower. I'm like, I think I've mentioned this before. I'm at one side of this parapet. He's at the other side. And we both had machine guns. And again, I don't remember if, if, if I had the, 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 the 240 or the M60 or the 249 and he had the other one because I really don't remember. This has been some years ago. But we both had them, and we're and we're both observant. We're both looking at things, and this was a this was one of those times during that day where we both felt rested. We'd had our coffee. We'd done the up down thing. We were doing just fine, and we're elevated pretty good. It's it's a pretty good climb up to the top. You know, you got to go through this heavy door that you open down at the bottom. You go inside. You close it. You got to go through the steel trap to get up any further, and then another steel trap to get up there. Um, so we're up. I don't know maybe roughly approximately somewhere between 30 and 50 feet i got a pretty good view and i think i mentioned this before there's these you know they look like uh uh sandstone houses and huts and whatever out there along with all the other stuff you see out there with the dirt roads and 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 the the walls and everything they have out there that's been some of it's still standing some of it's kind of beat up pretty bad it's been hit pretty hard whether it was jets or helicopters or tanks or whatever else got it okay so we're looking at this clearing because the the tower is pressed up against the wall maybe even part of that wall uh, it's a fairly thick wall, and the wall is pretty tall as well. I don't remember, maybe 20 feet tall, something like that. And there's two big, like, steel doors, uh, roughly 25 to 50 feet to our left of that tower, where it might occasionally be used for egress or ingress. Uh, maybe DOD, uh, probably for the guys there on that project, typically you know, the spook kind of stuff that goes on. So we're looking out there, we're, we're watching, we're keeping an eye on this stuff. And we had already been talking about how easy it would be if we weren't paying attention for somebody to sneak in, even in daylight, and get through this tall scrub and set an IED right, 
right there, either in the drive path or along the drive path or by the doors, this, that, one thing, another. So we're talking, and I don't remember who discovered it. It was me or him. I think me. Looked down, and it was it, it was just barely outside, just barely, I'm sorry, just barely within my ability to see it visually. I mean, he'd gotten that close to the wall, and it was an Iraqi dressed in, you know, just whatever street clothing. And he was hunched down, and he was squirreling around for something. And I alerted the dude, and we didn't freak out, but it was something close to us. Like, holy shit, how did he get there? Where did he come from? What the hell? Bring our weapons to bear. We start yelling and hollering and screaming. Get our weapons ready. They're poised. He looks around. He finally notices us uh, through the parapet. And I, I'm going to say, as I recollect, his eyes got pretty big. <laughs> he jumped up and tore out of there as fast as I've ever seen anybody run. He thought, okay. Uh, now, we, we called it in. We didn't want to. It was like, oh, shit. But we, we called it in. We told our supervisors about this, that, one thing, another. And so they went out there. They sent some people out there to go check to make sure that there was no explosive or anything else. And I never really did hear back but I, I specifically, but we did hear around about that it was okay. Nothing, nothing came of it. Whew. Woo. <laughs> right? <laughs> so uh, one other one, and, and this, was, uh, this would be the last one for this episode. Um, and it was it was nothing really uh, special, but <clears throat> it was my first exposure to a full-on boom, and it was big, and it was loud, and the darndest thing is that it was somewhere, it may not have been downtown Baghdad, because we were nearby app, but it was in the Baghdad area, or at least in one of the rural areas, so we're out there by app, <clears throat> so out there in one of the, you know, where they've got just you know the city like never ends it's like there's cities everywhere they call them districts or they call them uh provinces you know or not provinces but districts and, and one thing or another just this we felt we were sitting down in our respective seats chairs they're uh fairly nice industrial type chairs elevated uh and just felt this tremendous vibration that, that kind of rocked us, and, and it's like, whoa, we thought maybe it was an earthquake. What the hell? But then we heard the boom a few seconds later. Very loud, dull, thud, roar, rolling boom. It's like, holy crap. Well, out our periphery, because it was that big, we saw this big, huge plume of black smoke rising up, uh, similar to what you see in the movies, it becomes a big mushroom cloud, and and uh, it's like, <clears throat> and we could almost almost see uh, the people out there. Well, we kind of could sort of see down there. Uh, not not you know we we pulled out the binoculars, we tried to get eyes on, um, and so we called that in. Uh, you know, we're sure that other people heard it and saw it as well, but we called it in and told them what we knew about it, and we kept our eyes peeled. Uh, in that general vicinity, as well as covering our um, area of responsibility or the AOR that we were in specifically. So we kind of had a dual purpose there for that one. But that was my first exposure to a big boom. <laughs> like, wow, man, we were that far away. And, and we were 
kibitzing back and forth about what the actual distance was from that. And we estimated roughly one mile. So slightly less, slightly more, but roughly a mile away. It's like, wow, that was big. Turns out it was um, what we had experienced again later, um, <coughs> I think mostly in Afghanistan. They used field trucks. <coughs> so you see them here in America all the time. The big fuel tanks that are rolling around, whether it's gasoline or it's oil or propane, um, so they use the, the diesel. They, they generally go with the diesel, um, and, and they put the explosives in there. So when it blows up, uh, you got the diesel that goes along with it. So you got no, not only the explosive force, but also that rolling, burning from the diesel uh, that causes just tremend- it can cause tremendous devastation. So that's what that was out there. So <laughs> I'm just saying... Yeah, um, and there were plenty of other things. And we'll talk about them, but uh, that's pretty much a wrap for this one. But I'm just saying, yeah. So I had I had gotten what I wished for, <laughs> right? What do I say? Be careful what you wish for. You might get it. <clears throat> so it wasn't that bad. I mean, it, you know, <clears throat> wasn't being shot at at that time and, and didn't have to return fire or anything else. But it was like, wow, um, interesting uh, first couple of weeks there on the ground. And as I recall, uh, communications with the wife back home, uh, Wi-Fi access and the other stuff there wasn't that good. So most of the communications I had with the wife back home was vis-a-vis that uh, Nokia N95 phone that I had with me still that I bought a SIM card. I forget which provider there in Iraq, but, you know, plenty of them now. Um, And there were, I don't know, five or six or more. That, that you could anyway so that's primary communications was the phone with the wife so <laughs> with that said folks i uh want to thank you and everyone uh for tuning in and listening taking time out of your day afternoon or evening to listen to me talk about private security contracting overseas not necessarily oconus because that's a totally different thing okay as well as some of my experiences as a private security contractor overseas. And yes, I will explain the difference between overseas and, and Oconus later. Thank you again to Cavic Cohen and Colin Perry. And thank you to Andres Rodriguez. Thank you to my wife, for whom, as I've said before, I owe immeasurable gratitude. My children and all the folks, male and female, who have been and still are a part of my life. And remember, folks, it takes a team. The grass is not always greener on the other side. Be careful what you wish for, because you might just get it. Stay humble, stay safe, and keep others safe by staying frosty. And until next time, keep it real. 